There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, welcome. It's the Nerdist Podcast number 348. You're in luck. Uh, I'm, I've been in three states in the last 24 hours, so this is not going to be a long intro. Pennsylvania, New York, and now Texas. I'm here for the Moon Tower Festival. Uh, there's a couple shows that I'm doing at the Stateside Theater this week, uh, being April 20, it's April 24th now. So, uh, I believe the shows are the 25th and the 26th, the Stateside. And then Saturday the 27th, Nerdist TV show is on BBC America at 10pm with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Gillian Jacobs. So, tune in for that business. Now, I would like to thank Carbonite Online Backup. Say, do you seldom back up? Or do you never back up? Why do you love potentially losing your stuff forever? Uh, Carbonite Online Backup will protect your files off-site, in the cloud, in the magical digital cloud that uh, will rain all of your information back down on you when you need it, except you control it. You're like a thunder god of information. So Carbonite Backup will, uh, in the case of a disaster, you get all your stuff back. Or if you get a new computer, you just pop it over. It's super easy. Uh, Plans start at $59 a year. It's a better backup plan. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code NERDIS and get two bonus months with purchase. That is Carbonite.com. Use the offer code NERDIS. This episode is my... uh, old friend Scott Adsit, who is a master improviser. Uh, If you ever get a chance to see him perform, I highly recommend that you do. Uh, He was on 30 Rock. Uh, He played Pete on 30 Rock. And uh, and then, you know, again, this is a guy that I've wanted to get on for ages, but he lived in New York. I live in L.A. You understand how geography works. So finally, I was able to get Scott Adsit on uh, for the Nerds Podcast, episode number 348. Now entering... Nerdist.com Scott adds it. Have we started? Yeah, that was it. The most common question on the podcast. (laughs) Have we started? Sometimes I just don't even say anything, and ten minutes will go by, and then I'll I'll visibly, and then someone will go, and they're very conversational, and then uh, I'll go, when do we start? I go, we started like ten minutes ago, and then sometimes I'll see them visibly change, like oh, I have to go into I'm being recorded now mode. Yeah, the posture goes straight. Yeah, it goes a little bit, but I feel like we're pretty good at wearing people's defenses down a little bit. You've got me. <laughs> oh, buddy, we've been friends for a long time now. All right, that's it. I want everything. 
Uh, go ahead. Ask questions because I'm not interesting enough to start a conversation. That's not true. Where'd you get that shirt? At a store. Where's, what about yours? Enjoy your burrito. <laughs> this is the end of the podcast. <laughs> this is a minute 14 <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I didn't. I forgot to tell you. It's only a minute and 14 seconds. That's how we do. You know, because my feeling is the first thing that comes out of anyone's mouth is probably going to be the most interesting and soul and soul revealing. Mm. And so that's pretty much it. I said I was uh, not interesting. <laughs> oh, that's that. Now that just became very interesting. See? That revealed something about. Do you honestly think you're not interesting? I. I feel that way sometimes, yeah. Of course, don't we all? But um, except maybe you know, really A personalities, <laughs> really type A personalities. Yeah. But maybe they're compensating. Wow, isn't that possible? You think Alec Baldwin is compensating? <laughs> <laughs> See, he's a really interesting guy who knows a lot about a lot of things. Yes, and he can talk about anything he wants. I don't have that skill. Why not? Um, it may be because I'm not interested enough in things. Do you think type A stands for type Alec? Wow. He should copyright that. <laughs> Maybe he already did. On a plane. On a phone. That's what he was really trying to do. You owe him money now. What? You owe him money now. Oh, yeah, because I said type A. Yeah. And that's his royalty. Mm-hmm. Well, we, there are so many things we can talk about. Scott adds it. Of course, first of all, I'm sorry 30 Rock went away. Thank you. But it lasted a really long time. Longer than anybody expected. I know that. I mean, we started that thing and, and uh, you know, we, I think we thought we'll be lucky if we last the season. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even move to New York until season three. I didn't have any confidence that the, the audience <laughs> would catch on that it was a great show. Um, and we were also up against um, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which is, you know, had a great pedigree going for it. But that was the weird... I remember that season where it's like, wait, 30 Rock and Studio 60, two shows about uh, an SNL-type show? Yeah, but there's a good argument for that in that... Well, Aaron ER, Sorkin. ER and Scrubs were on the same network. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't... When I, when I first heard about that, what I left out was that I didn't realize that one was... Until I heard it was Tina on 30 Rock and then Aaron Sorkin on Studio 60. Yeah. 30 Rock, hilarious. Studio 60, not that funny. Not really that funny. The thing... The problem I think it had... And all props to Aaron Sorkin, because I think he's brilliant. Um, he was trying to teach SNL how to be a better SNL, uh, by example. <laughs> and what that involved was writing sketches for his show, for his drama, where we would watch the sketches. And they were the kind of things I think he wanted to see SNL be capable of. He wanted to bring it to some kind of high arc intellectually and politically. And saw SNL as a great potential show. And so he went out and tried to fix it. Just like he, he fixed the White House on, on <laughs> uh, the West Wing. He made it the dream White House, the fantasy White House, the, where the, you know, the president is fair and, and just and honest and lovable. Everyone's quippy. Yeah, and everyone has the same uh, speaking rhythm. <laughs> Which are his. Yeah. Uh, so the Dream White House is, that, is, is, is basically in the epicenter of Aaron Sorkin's subconscious. As is everything in his world. You know, I think every, every show he's done has that kind of uh, Aaron Sorkin Sports personality. Night. And Studio 60, which, uh, to his credit, he did not know much about SNL when he was writing that show. <laughs> and he, which is your first, well, which is sort of the first problem if you're going to try to take something on. 
it, I think he's got enormous balls to do that. And I think he he had asked to come visit SNL and kind of shadow the crew and the uh, and the writing staff for a while, and they said no. Uh, so he didn't end up getting that kind of firsthand research. Well, I think the part of the problem was that it. I and by the way, first of all, you just got very interesting, Scott Adsit, because that was all good information. But I, but I I kind of always felt like. This idea that he was trying to elevate SNL never actually occurred to me before. I thought it was just another structure that he was going to try to take on. One was a sports show. One was a, a the White House. And this was, you know, like a Saturday night comedy show. The problem being, I think that it just, you know, politics has a lot of weight with everyone. I don't think that many people give a shit really how a sketch comedy show is made. I understand the social Im- implications that are involved. But when it all when it all came down to it, this show and this writer Matt Perry, you know, Rat, Matt Perry's character was supposed to be like the edgiest, best comedy writer ever, and it's crazy that they got him and he was going to buck the system. When it boiled down to it, the sketches just weren't very funny. Well, that was the problem: was that he 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 gave respect to the idea of sketches when everyone who does sketches knows that pretty much they're all bullshit and and it's just <laughs> like surviving a scene. Some scenes are brilliant and. Uh, should always be immortal, but there's a, you know the great majority of it is just getting by, and and you know here's a funny idea, it fleshed out not as well as we'd hoped, but you know this is our job. Uh, so I think what Tina did, the brilliant move she made was in the early few seasons of uh, Thirty Rock, there were scenes about sketches, but they weren't the sketches. We just made fun of sketches, right? Um, and just about how inane they are. And that's Tina's first-hand experience. Writing a sketch is fucking hard. Just flat out not easy. Because you can write, I mean, from my, let me back up. Writing sketches for me (laughs) is very hard. Because you can come up with a premise, and you can come up with a good couple of jokes. But what's the point? How do you tie it together? Like, ending a sketch. How do you you stick the landing on a sketch without, without it feeling like, oh, I guess they just turned the applause signs on. Right, right. And the... And you see, people complain about SNL about it's not funny, it's not as good as it used to be, and all that. And the fact is that over all the years it's been on the air, you know, there's been two or three great sketches in a night, and the rest probably not so much. And when you watch like the best of SNL, they're edited down to an hour, you know, uh, and they've taken out the chaff. But uh, their writing staff is full of brilliant educated writers who really know what they're doing and still they have a hard time well it's hard to write a brand new show every single week and i mean essentially the show that they put on every saturday night is a workshop yeah for you know what i assume sketches that'll come back or movies that they can develop or whatever or digital shorts that they can make (laughs) but it really is it really is the structure of it is a workshop you write, uh, you know, you write a bunch and then you try some stuff out and you throw away what doesn't work. But the difference being that it just all goes on the air. Yeah. And it's all about, too, too about what goes on the air is, you know, the mood of the room that day. Oh, yeah. And because comedy is, you're basically forming a relationship with your audience and stuff can kill in rehearsal, but then your audience may not be on board. Let me just say, too, this is all audio. I'm nodding through everything Chris is saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. While you picture us talking, just look. Do you see my head like a bobblehead? Just While Scott and head. I figure out comedy, 
We're going to solve this. We're going to figure this out today. I think we're going to solve this. We're going to fix Aaron Sorkin's Studio 60. We're going to get it back on the air. Studio 61. <laughs> they move in next door with a new attitude. Maybe a Fox attitude. Who knows? It's going to be new and improved. Yeah, there'll be some supernatural element. <laughs> oh, my God. A supernatural sketch comedy show where they the guests that they have on are demons that they're hunting. So it's a cross between 30 Rock and Supernatural. Yeah, that's a nice arc. That'll have like a three-season arc. I love it. And it's in the middle of... A, it'll be the 30 Rock of Gibraltar. Oh, that doesn't oh, work. Fell apart. Yeah, we don't, we're not going to figure that's out sad. comedy tonight. See, that is an example of something where in a writer's room... <laughs> Everyone would have been like, you're, you're fired. <laughs> Did you ever write for SNL? No, I didn't. Did you ever audition for SNL? I auditioned, yeah. Um, and it went very well, I thought. Um, at least it seemed to. They were very excited about me. Um, and then uh, it got down to me and one other guy, and they went with him, and, and um, you know, they should have. He was, I think, I, I don't know if I'm cut out for that show. So what characters did you do? Did you do uh, Crazy Jewish Lady from the Bronx? <laughs> did you do uh, Chicago I did, uh, I did guy finger, ordering finger, a pizza? Finger for a mustache guy. Finger for a mustache guy. I did uh, Teeth uh, for Eyebrows guy. Yep. And I did... Uh, uh, did you do Inappropriate Priest? I did. Inappro- inappropriate Priest, priest yeah. in Blackface? Who talked very loud. Who was very loud, yeah. Um, I auditioned back in like 95. And... Um, they plucked me out of Second City, and a bunch of us went from Second City to audition. And uh, and of the, my group, Nancy Walls was hired, David Keckner was hired, and Adam McKay was hired. Oh, right. that's, Carell was just on just a couple days ago. Yeah. He's Nancy's husband. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know why I said that. Like, you wouldn't know that. I just... Well, maybe someone listening doesn't know. <laughs> yeah, that was the season that they retooled it was all revamped except, I think, Spade and um, Norm mm-hmm. were still on. But everybody else was new. And a lot, a lot of them didn't really last more than like a season, right? Yeah, a few of them didn't last. I wonder what the formula is for... Because you take a guy like Keckner who is fucking phenomenal. And what, what, I wonder what it was I'm that nodding. just didn't, didn't jive with him in that show. Like, that show... It's not just let's put funny people on. There are very specific types of people that work on that show. And a balance to all that as well, because you, you can't have two of the same types on. People have their functions within a cast, and you don't want to repeat an energy, because then someone's going to be on the sidelines because someone does that particular kind of thing better. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a tough balancing act. What was... how were you were you are part of... Were you part of Beer Shark Mice, or were you not part I of... I sat in with them sometimes. You sat in with them yeah. sometimes. But no, I was never, like, part of the core. Who was that? It was Keckner and Pat... Was Pat Finn? And Neil Flynn. And Neil Flynn. And, um... Adrian... Zmed? Adrian Zmed from... No, Adrian Winter, no. Are you thinking of Adrian Winter? I was thinking of Adrian Winter. Um... Who's also a phenomenal improviser. Uh, Pete Holney. And, uh... Oh, am I forgetting somebody? So that was kind of a heyday of... That was a that was a good improv wave in Chicago at that point. I would imagine stand up was kind of on the downslope in 95, 94, yeah, 95. Yeah, it was a nice little golden age, I think. A lot of people came out in my generation, I'll exclude myself from this, but there were a lot of people who really knew what they were doing and knew how to work with each other and came from the school, the Del Close school and then were hired by Second City cuz Second City and and the IO 
the Improv Olympic were always kind of Russia and America, and they just never really got along. There was a kind of a, a peaceful um, rivalry going on. What was the, just to back up a little bit, what, what was the break? It was it, Second City and then IO broke off of Second City? Is that, is well, that how it worked? Well, Dell worked at Second City, and then he didn't want to anymore, so he opened up his own theater with Sharna Helpern. And, uh, that was Improv Olympic. Yeah, and a training center and all that. And so they had their own, they had the Herald Nights and stuff, and Second City did two acts of sketch comedy that was developed through improv and then a, a third act of improv, but that's, that was the same thing every night. Um, and at I.O. it was a different show every, every night because they were doing a different form. And uh, the thing is, there were all these brilliant people who were not working together because... Uh, there was this rivalry going on, but then the walls came down and there was a detente of sorts and they started hiring IO people for Second City to train oh. Second City. And that's when I met, you know, Adam McKay and, and uh, Noah Grecoropoulos and uh, maybe Keckner and uh, Nancy Walls and all uh, brilliant people, um, Brian Stack and Kevin Dorff. And they all were people who made Second City much much uh, richer, I thought. And at this point, are you? You're actually getting paid to be in Second City. Is that? Is that? Was that the case? Yeah, that's oh, yeah. amazing. That's one of the only paying gigs in Chicago for an actor. It's it's like a, a long term gig. You can you stay pretty much as long as you want, unless you're really hated. But no one's really hated. And that was a yeah, that was a great gig. You could you, you got paid to tour. You got paid to be on stage, and it was. Good money for an actor. Great money. So I wonder if that CD player should be making that noise. I thought that was your stock ticker. Yep. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Jameson's spats are up. <laughs> Two and a quarter. It's all right. One of the CD players just went down, but I'm, I have a backup. We're good. Don't worry about it. It's fine, Scott Adsit. It's going to be all fine. Stop making that noise. <laughs> Scott, it's going to be okay. I, uh, I touched something over here. Should I not touch anything? <laughs> don't touch that exposed electrical wiring. Oh, my God. With your balls. Don't touch. See, why did I have to make it about the balls? It's a crutch. My balls are a crutch because they're enormous, and I lean on them. I'm sitting on one right now. <laughs> it's all the way across. Are you sure that's mine? Wait. Let me see. Oh, no. This is disembodied. Oh, oh my God. Is. I'm sorry. Excuse me, did you, I, I think I left a ball in here. Have you guys seen a ball? Oh, is that your uh, SNL character? Yep, I'm on an audition with I left a ball in the room guy. <laughs> <laughs> or as my friend used to call this, this guy and that lived in her neighborhood who, uh, who only had one ball, they called him Only One Cannoli. <laughs> Maybe that'll be that character. Hey, it's Tony Only One Cannoli! Hey, Tony, bring your two balls over here. Sorry, I just got the one. Get out of here. All right, I'm going, and I'm taking my ball with me. Applause sign. <laughs> well, actually, we would do that for about 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then there would be an applause sign. All right, this one definitely is just not working anymore. I sure hope the first CD player doesn't go down because we will be in serious trouble. What so do you got on there? Skinnered. No, this, some of the, you know, this equipment in here is very old. Some of it works. Some of it doesn't. No one ever repairs it or maintains it. It's and and I think... You watch you work on the board, though, like Rick Dees. 
just doing your own board. This is really great. <laughs> oh, wait, wait till I, wait till you hear my reboot of Disco Duck. <laughs> it's going to be great. Did you do, did you guys, did you do stand-up ever? I did for a little while in the early, <laughs> god damn it, the early 90s with uh, Dino Stamatopoulos. Dino! And uh, we were a two-man team, one of several he's had. Um, and oh, we got did, it. We That's where you guys became friends in Chicago at like the funny firm. Um, but we, I, di I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like, um, I liked the crowds and everything fine. Half of whom hated what we were doing, the other half really loved what we were doing. So we felt we were doing something right. Is you, was, are you, Dino's MO seems to be to like really fuck with people. Is that sort of your comedy style? And that I'd go along. If someone has a style that they like, and I, I can jump into it easily, um, I like I, I like being nice to people. But I if, do too. But but if uh, if Dino wants to do a night where we fuck with the audience or challenge them to like what we're doing, then uh, I'm all for it. I mean, we were doing th experimental stuff. He and I, and and I'd done experiment a lot of experimental comedy in Chicago, where you were risking having the audience either just get bored or confused or angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I love doing that, and and I will I will still I'll do that anytime you want me to do it. But it's not my it's not the first thing I think of. Do you think that's more? Or I think I think some people see that as more artistic in some way, where it's like, no, if you're just going for a laugh, you're a clown. But if you're an artist, you make the audience feel something, man. Yeah, I mean, the the first <laughs> the order of business I'm... I think is to delight the audience, and then you know, secondarily, you can try to make it art. But if but if you're not delighting them with the art, then I'm not sure you're doing your job. Got it. Maybe that's just an excuse for making people not laugh. Oh, I've tried to be artistic. <laughs> What's the worst thing you've ever done on stage? There was a thing. This is a, kind of interesting. It's kind of a famous story, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, it was at Second City. We were developing a new form for the main stage show, which had never been done before. We wanted to make it more of a long form, Harold-esque kind of uh, thing instead of just a line of scenes one after another, like a train car, it would be more the structure of a dream where, where scenes kind of end and morph into different scenes and then come back to the first scene and little pop-up windows of, of scenes that are f flashing forward to something and heralding some other scene that might happen in Act 2. It's all very strange. And we, we were trying to figure out what this animal would be. And so we were just experimenting with making the audience feel different things. And one night in the set... Uh, we decided, this is the improv set, we decided to tell the audience that the president had been shot <laughs> when he had not been. This is Clinton. And we were planning this backstage and kind of giggling at it. And I remember half the, half the uh, cast was dead set against it. And I was all for it because I didn't know what it would be. And I wanted to try something that was not what I'd been used to doing. And so... Uh, McKay and uh, Tom Janis, the director, and I uh, kind of worked out what would happen. And this is what happened. So uh, Rachel Dratch is on stage uh, doing a scene uh, with Jenna Jolovitz, I believe. And in the middle of that, which, which was going well, and this is all planned, uh, I walked out and kind of it was obvious I wasn't entering the scene as a character. I walked over and I kind of whispered in the two girls' ears, and they kind of blanched and went off stage. And then I walked up to the lip of the stage, and I said, um, uh, we've, we've just gotten word. Oh, no. and, I, and I did this 
it's kind of a, a an acting experience as well because I wanted to f- really fool the audience. So I did it as sincerely and with tears in my eyes as I could, uh, which is really convincing because I'm a very good actor. <laughs> Even at that time. Absolutely. I'm a little worse now, actually. And I said that the president had been shot. We don't have any details right now, uh, but we're going to stop the show and we're, we're going to bring a TV out from the backstage of <laughs> oh, for no. you so you can watch the news coverage. There's, there's monitors in the lobby if you want to go out there. Um, you're welcome to stay. Oh, I'm but, almost feeling a little nauseous here. But, <laughs> um, nerves. But no more comedy. That's how I ended this. <laughs> so, then, <laughs> so then they wheel out, um, I think Adam wheeled out this how, cart with How are people out. reacting at this point? It's, it's, there's uh, Scotty Allman, who's in the cast, said you could hear a mouse shit. <laughs> uh, they were absolutely silent. And you could hear, like, little gasps and, and people discussing whether they should stay. But overall, it was just stunned. Like Star Trek stunned. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so Adam wheels out this TV, and I turn it on, and it kind of buzzes to life. And on it is a sports blooper. And at that time, sports bloopers were the, all the rage, and there's constant commercials for sports bloopers. What do you mean TV. at that time? I mean, yeah, come on. No, you're right. Uh, and so I, I, the sports bloopers and... And I said, sorry, and I was going to change the channel, and Adam goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then he watches the blooper, whatever it is. The guy got hit in the nuts or whatever it is. And he starts giggling. And then he kind of like, you know, pokes me, and I, and I kind of laugh at that, kind of begrudgingly. And then we watch the next one. <laughs> and, then, and then the rest of the cast comes out to watch the news report, but then they kind of like get involved in the sports bloopers. And then we sit down on the stage with our backs to the audience and you know, sitting Indian style with our, with our chins on our fists and watch these sports bloopers <laughs> instead of the president's <laughs> coverage. And audience is still silent. And a- after a good minute or two, McKay turns to the audience and says, people love sports bloopers. <laughs> and, we just, and we just sat there and... About a third of the audience laughed and really appreciated it because they're, you know, cynical and, and young. And the rest of the audience was really angry and got up and left. And we stayed watching sports bloopers until the audience was empty. <laughs> so that was, a, that, was one of many, that was one of many little experiments. Were into, you freaking out inside or were you like, no, we're going to stick with this. This is the plan. It was in the middle of a really interesting process of a Second City show, unlike any I'd been before. I'd done like five shows at that point, And this was really different. So I was really excited by it and I didn't care. I'd hurt anybody's feelings or made anybody worried or anything. I didn't care because I thought it was cool. And it's looking back on it, it was frivolous and reckless and, and pretty cruel to make people think that our president had been shot and possibly killed. Yeah, people don't want their emotions fucked with that much. Exactly. They didn't pay their money for that. They didn't stay in line. They didn't, they didn't find parking. 
to be fucked with like that. Was there a bit of a was there a scandal or uh, did people I try? Think they to... wrote it up in the paper. Um, it didn't. I don't think. I think people asked for the money back. I think that was as far as it went. But there were all there were a lot of things that we experimented with. I I did a thing once uh, where I wanted to see what would happen if they thought I had really injured myself, and so I did a bit where we were improvising something, and I in within the context of the scene jumped off stage into the aisle, which is a good four feet. Something like that, four, three or four feet. And I went down, and, uh, and I just was not there for the rest of the scene. And then we had to finish the uh, night with a game of Switch, or Freeze Tag, whatever they call it now. And um, I got up on stage and had put blood all over my ankle uh, when I was down. And so then <laughs> I was, uh, in this game Freeze, it's, it's like a, a string of scenes, and people get tagged out. And it's generally two people, and then someone from the back line will yell freeze and tag out people. And I got left in the entire time, and people were like jumping on me, and they, they, they. so <laughs> the actors uh, apparently did not know that I was horribly injured and bleeding, and had probably a broken ankle with a with a compound fracture. The audience did, um, and so I was getting jumped on and abused and twisted and. Um, it, again, all it did was make them anxious. <laughs> it didn't lead to anything. It was a it was a half baked idea because I didn't. It was my idea, and I didn't know where to go with it. I just wanted to see what would happen. So it was irresponsible, but it was fun. Do, you know, I tell you, if particularly with the president thing, if that were today, <laughs> internet, wham, mm-hmm. outrage, a sketch group, uh, like well, we'd probably be on a list or two as well. Yeah. Worst like governmental list. <laughs> Maybe you would be. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like the Clinton administration had Thirty Rock canceled? It gave <laughs> you guys a sense of security. Like, okay, they're going to be okay. They're on for a little while, and then just yank the rug out from underneath. Like it was some thing that the Obama administration had to act act out because it was Did it retribution. Yeah. I don't. Well, see, <laughs> no. Okay. Because uh, we, it didn't really matter what we were doing in that little space in Chicago. Who cares? Isn't that kind of that? That is kind of comforting, though. That the, I mean, it's not really like this anymore because anything you do or say in a sketch or in a comedy club could instantly make people hate you or love you, just because of the ability to reach the entire world that everyone has yeah. in their fucking pocket now. Yeah. That there certainly must have been. A sense of safety that you didn't probably even realize that you had or that you sort of took for granted because it, it wasn't, wasn't really going to leave that theater or that neighborhood or that yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. It's a different world now. And I haven't had that experience yet where a- anything I did on stage was viral because I, uh, I'm not interesting. But um, <laughs> You've told, uh, you know what, lucky, you've told you, some really good stories. Do you have to, when you're on stage, are you conscious of that? Are you, do you make sure you're on good behavior? And, well, you, I, I don't, I mean... I feel like I stay within parameters of, I mean, there. Do you feel different when you're performing live when there's no broadcast as far as you know? Um, Is it a different Chris Hardwick? It's probably a little bit different than if I were on, like, network television. But, I mean, like, a difference here where this is your show and you can say whatever you want. No, I feel exactly the same between here and when I'm on stage. I mean, I, the stuff that I say here, I would say on stage yeah. and vice versa. I, I don't, I feel like people who come out to shows... Now, they didn't for a long time, but quite recently have started coming out on purpose. 
<laughs> and so they kind of know, you know, they, they sort of know what it is. And, and and I'm like you. I don't like to make people – I don't like people to feel bad. Yeah. My whole sort of MO is – and when people feel bad, I feel terrible. Yeah. So my MO is like, uh, you know – and maybe this makes me a less interesting comedian, but I, but I, I think, hey, we're all celebrating each other in a fun way, and I'm, we're poking fun at things. I'm poking fun at things that, like, your brother or your friend would poke fun at, that it's not, you know, I don't think there's any sense when I'm on stage that there's anything malicious that I'm saying. Yeah. And, but, and you know, I've never really been that way. Um, so, you know, I, I just don't think, yeah. So I don't know if I'm I'm on a necessarily different behavior, but I'm certainly aware as aware I can as I can be if people are filming stuff from the audience and, you know, it's I don't love it. I don't love that that part of it. Yeah, cuz there's no there's nothing that someone of your stature would do now, especially with your My nerd stature. community. Yeah. Um that is not broadcast probably. Well, everything feels like you you almost I think the <laughs> Sort of like the, the 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 big downside to social media, where everything is now, is that people just ha- live under this assumption that it's okay to broadcast everything at all times, mm-hmm. no matter what. And I, you know, of course, you know, legally it is. Of course, everyone has free speech, freedom of express- expression. You can, you know, so it's not it's not like I think that that should be taken away. But it's still not my favorite thing in the world, where you sort of start to feel like. Oh, I kind of, you know, it's, I'll tell you what, it's not, it's not so much that in the context of comedy that I feel like I have to be on better behavior. It's in life. I feel like I have to be on a little bit because at least when you're on stage, it's, or on a podcast, the comedy is within a context. And so no one's going to go, you fucking piece of shit. But in life, the comedians are still comedians off stage. And so, you know, you could take, you could just fire off some dumb joke with someone in life. And they're not—they're not in the context of a comedy show. To them, yeah. you're just an asshole. And you know, if someone re- records it or tweets it, I don't know. It can just—it it can blow up in a weird way, taken out of context. So I, I think I'm probably on better behavior just in life in general. Well, you're a very polite man. You're very kind. Which is holding you back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just don't like people to feel. Bad. I feel like you know, and I, I was raised to. My parents were very good about you should be polite to people and be courteous to people, and and I also feel like I've been in the situation a lot where, particularly with the industry that we both work in, that I've been made to feel like I'm worthless, and so I don't like I don't I in turn don't want people to feel that way. So right. part of me wants people to. I think maybe that's part of my whole idea of like celebrating everything. Cause I, I think it sucks when to make people feel bad at the expense of a joke of a self-indulgent joke to make people feel bad. Well, that's interesting because the first time I ever saw you, of course, was on singled out. Yes. Where did you, did you have a hard time? Cause a lot of that was making fun of the jerks who were there, right? I did not. Well, that's true. Um, this feeling that I have now, this idea that I have now about what the comedy is, is of, probably of the last four or five years of my comedy. Yeah. In those days when singled out, singled out was populated with the types of people that I hated in college. So I I was this, and that's not to say I didn't have fun doing the show, right? but I was this, you know, kind of nerdy kid 
you know, like my freshman year of college, I tr- I tried to be in a fraternity and I just couldn't I just can't hang with dudes. Like I'm Me just too. I'm just not a dude that way. Um and so you know, the single now comes along and it's just all dudes, like fraternity dudes, sorority girls, like all the people that I always... Awful people at their worst. <laughs> I almost felt... And they were also brought into some kind of fervor by your producers. It was like miniature teen Vegas. If there was a Las Vegas for teens, yeah. it would have been singled out. And so I... Uh, and so I never... You know, the first couple seasons on that... The first season on that show, I did not, I did not feel comfortable. Um, I and sort did they did they say be ruder? Would they say you know you you got to take these guys down or was that nope. just part of what you were doing? What happened was I started watching the show and I realized two things. Number one, I was shouting because it was so loud on the set yeah. that you couldn't hear people unless you were shouting, you know. And so and so I was all welcome to single that. Like I was shouting, like I was doing this character that was sort of like I think in my head was kind of this. This mad genius. Welcome to single night. Like, you know, of course I was full of shit, but. Well, but you also probably felt like the smartest person in the room. I felt, I, I, you I, could not. I well, mean, the, the, the whole point of the show is to make everyone watching feel smarter. <laughs> isn't it? And, and more uh, noble. I, I don't know if this is good or bad. I left the pursuit of my philosophy degree to host singled out. <laughs> um, so. The paper in that. <laughs> so, uh. Uh, but the other thing I realize is, oh, I don't need to shout. I have a microphone right under me, and I can talk way under everyone on the set, mm-hmm. which gives me the freedom of saying it was almost like being invisible in front of them. So I can say anything I want. They're never going to hear it, That's and right. only the people at home will hear it. And so what I really started doing was acting out years of being bullied by douchebags mm-hmm. and, and having a microphone so I, so I could say, like, Oh, well, this genius bag over here is trying to do that. Like, and they would never hear, you know, and so I could. And because my energy was always upbeat, no, it didn't. No, I don't think anyone was was ever struck by it as what is that guy saying over there? You know, and what would they do? Well, how would they get them so amped up? Well, it just because it was MTV, because you're clustering, you're there's so many, there's so many like 18 to 24 year old hormone. Uh, it's like a hormone carnival, and the the most interesting. But, I, but you know, that's also that's not normal human behavior. No, that's, but when you, but it's 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 human cluster behavior. Human cluster behavior is so fucking evil mm. because <clears throat> it everyone sort of feels like the group will justify their actions. So yeah. like, it was. I mean, it was like I was waiting for a rape at any moment. It didn't matter who was raping whom. It was well, I'll tell you happen. something. You know, it's, it, we. The fa- even that you say that, I'm not even kidding. There was a there was a rule that was instated after the first season of the show, which was the "don't touch Jenny" rule, uh-huh. and the security guards and the stage manager threatened the dudes, the 50 dudes in the dating pool, threatened them with their lives. If you touch Jenny, you will fucking be dragged out by your throat. Because when we first started the show, she would start the she would the first season she would start in the middle of all these yeah. guys. And they would get so molesty and grab her and say horrible things. Like, it was really gross. Yeah. And so, it, and it's just those fucking dudes in that. I mean, I, I'm sure you could write an entire thesis paper on that. And I'm sure there are many on what happens to a group of people in that in that situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the truth is, it, it, it was... 
it was a little borderline rapey. Like, well, like they and were also, I, you know, I didn't even think that it was about sex at all. It was just about violence. Those guys were just... It was posturing. They, they could have raped the women. They could have raped each other. It would have turned into something bacchanalic. It was, it was, it was sort of, yes, let's say it is. Bacchanalian? Let's just say Thank it was you. raw sex. The show was raw sexual aggression. Aggression, uh, yeah. Raw sexual aggression. And not that any of them meant to be aggressive, but it just sort of kind of created that environment. Now we've completely taken any of the fun out of the show. But really, that's sort of, that's, they, they, my point is, the dudes had to be threatened. They basically had to be cattle prodded like a pack of fucking wild chimps mm-hmm. in to not rip things apart and try to put their dicks on them. So, and start throwing shit. I'll keep going with the chimp analogy. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, so, so, I, and I, and I, I, as a guy, I hated that energy. I fucking always hated that about guys as, you know, it, I hate dudes being represented in that way. Cause I always want to be like, not all guys are like that. Yeah. And so I think that I was just reacting to that. Now and this has turned into you podcasting me. So I apologize for making it about myself. Well, no, that, I, I'm interested, but also, I mean, that's a, they chose the right guy for that job. Maybe, Just maybe not. To balance, to balance all that testosterone, you're the perfect. But I, <laughs> I appreciate that. But I would not say that that show, while that show was very popular, you know, the truth is it was really the Jenny show, and I was just kind of the guy with floppy Never. hair. But, but, <laughs> but that was sort of the that was sort of thing. So yeah, so I that 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 that's that's how that went down, and that's that was why I you know if I was insulting on that show and I would run into people and they'd be like, you made fun of me on your show. And I'm like, ah, this is fucking around. And they'd be like, ah, it's okay. Yeah. Cause I don't think anyone really takes me that serious. I'm not like a threatening presence. You've made me feel very bad. <laughs> what already? Do you feel terrible? I do feel really bad, Scott. What can I do to make it better? What um, can I do? Tell me more about yourself. <sighs> well, I feel really bad right now. Excellent. Do you feel, uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, uh, we haven't talked about anything really nerdy yet. What do you want to talk about? What are you reading it's comic-wise? Han Solo movie. What about it? I don't look forward to it. You don't look forward to a Han Solo movie? No. Why? Because there's only one Han Solo. So? He's not James Lo? Bond. He's not, you know. Could be. I don't think so. Why not? Because anyone who's going to go in there is... is do you think be... he's a better supporting character? As part of I'm an ensemble? That. I'm No, I'm saying I don't want some other actor playing him. Oh, 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 oh. I see what you're saying. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I know. That'll be hard. That'll, that'll be hard just because we have, you know, 35 years of Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Yeah. And uh, true, he did, his heart was not in the third one. <laughs> but he was so great in the first two. How do, you, how do you live up to that? I mean, people, there's great people in charge. For sure, they got great people to be in charge of Star Wars now. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that for people who grew up with Star Wars, when Star Wars grew up, for people who grew up with Star Wars, and I don't mean like as part of their lives, I mean literally grew up alongside Star Wars growing up. Yeah. You know, it could be it could be a, a tough pill to swallow at first, but I but I I like to try to keep an open mind about things, and I and I think it's you want to play him, don't you? What? This is all leading. That to would me. never happen in a bajillion years. Yeah, I, if if Han Solo were hosting an after show about something. <laughs> It's funny that you say that you had you felt the need to say that will never happen. Well, I've, I've, well it's never going to happen. I know, like, like I made the most obvious statement in the world, <laughs> like, like that went without saying. No, like, I know, I know. Just, you're just making sure no one's going to disagree, right? Well, That's the thing is, happen, right? I feel right? like if people who are listening, if I don't say, well, of course that's never going to happen, then they're going to think. 
he must think that that's a possibility because he just took what Scott said and didn't reply to it. I'm always trying to stay one step ahead of the naysayers. Are you afraid of your naysayers? Am I afraid of them? Um, I because uh, I mean I'll, I'll I fear I'll them a little bit. Well, I fear them thinking that they get the jump on me. That's what it is. It's that comic. It's the heckler thing of of you know so many comics. You know I see do this. Like Pardo is a perfect example of a guy who like I know you think that it's because of this and this and this. I like it's sort of like laying out all the scenarios so that no one can get the jump on you. Yeah. But I did Talking Dead the other night. Yes. And you were wonderful. Um, As were you. It was a delightful episode. (coughs) And um, I was told beforehand, you know, make sure you know everybody's name on the show. Make sure you know what is uh, the the character arcs and all the plots are because if the people, if the fans uh, are aware of any kind of chink in your nerd armor, as far as the show goes, you, we and you will be eviscerated on Twitter. That's true. I, I, I'm glad that, I'm actually, I didn't know that they did that, and I'm actually glad to hear that, because it is true. If, when people who watch the show suspect that the people on the show are not actually into The Walking Dead, and yeah. by the way, that's never happened. Everyone who's been on the show watches the show. If I, if I say, had been up there and got somebody's name wrong or, or didn't remember some plot point, do you think it would have been a, a shitstorm? Um, I, I mean, a mini shitstorm. It's, you know, when you look at Twitter and then, you know, you see a bunch of responses about something, I think your natural logical inclination is to go, this is a representation of what everyone thinks. Yeah. But obviously the angriest people are the loudest. Right. So, but I do think it would, the people who wouldn't be angry, like if you got up and you said, you know, I love what, uh, I love that Nick Grimes, you know, then people would be like, why? Because I think, you know, when people watch the show, the sort of emotional contract that you make with them, that we make with them is, look, this show is for the fans. We're not going to do anything other than have, you know, People that you may recognize who are absolutely fans of the show. And if you're not a fan of the show, then people are going to go, well, why the fuck would I watch what this guy has to say? He's not even a fan of the show. He's just trying to promote something. And then then that's where they start to feel like maybe it's indulgent or why why can't they be on the show or they can think of a million better people to be on the show. And and so I just feel like that's just kind of I think it's just shitty for the fans. I think it's shitty as a fan to watch people talking from you know, an apocryphal position when they shouldn't be up there in the first, you know, if I'm watching a show and that happens, I would get fucking pissed off about it. Yeah. So I totally, I totally understand that. That's really interesting that they, that they said that. Oh yeah. There was a big warning there. It's a delicate balance. It is. Cause you gotta be nerdy and you gotta kind of be funny. Well, you just, you just have to, you just have to show respect for the show. And that doesn't even mean you have to like everything on the show. You can say, I think this thing is dumb. Mm-hmm. But in order for you to really break something down, you have to have intimate knowledge of it if you want to break it down in an authentic way. And that's totally fine. Yeah. As long as I think the respect for the project comes from people. Because, like, you know, Dave Navarro came on. He was like, I don't like that there's no. He said to Glenn Mazar, I don't like that there aren't any zombies on the show. The show's called The Walking Dead. And Glenn was like, I hear you. Just wait two episodes. Mm. And. You know, so that it wasn't, it, but in, in, for, in my eyes, and afterwards Dave was like, I'm sorry I was really hard about, and I go, no, no, you're a fan of the show. You are absolutely allowed to have a dissenting opinion because it shows, that shows that you care about the show. Yeah. As opposed to not knowing who people are or getting stuff wrong. Did you have fun? I had a great time, yeah. 
You've read the com. You've read all the comics, right? Have yeah. you read all the comics? Uh, I'm not caught up, but I have. I've, I've read at least a hundred. I'm up to 107, and I keep getting it. It's reading an issue at a time is a tough way to read a comic because in seven minutes you're like, I just need more <laughs> of this, and now I have to wait 30 days. Yeah, that's how, that's how your grandfather read comics. <laughs> I don't know if my grandfather read comics. What are you reading right now that you like? Um, Lock and Key. Love it. Um, Joe Hill. I like, uh, oh, uh, um, I like, there's two Daredevil series right now that are both good. And there's um, Hawkeye is very good. Uh, I'm not into the new 52. Haven't read anything but the first issues of all those. I read the first few issues of all those, and I really enjoyed them, actually. Yeah? Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not down for Superman's new costume. I don't think it's necessary. I was talking, I was talking to my girlfriend, Sandra, about this. Um, his costume has been changed into this fractal kind of armor thing, and it doesn't make sense to me. Because Superman is Superman, and there's, there's some things you can... He is change. armor. Yeah, he has armor. His skin is stronger than anything he could So he on. should be naked. Yeah. <laughs> well, he can, he can wear that skin-tight you know, circus strongman outfit uh, because he he's invulnerable. He doesn't need anything. He can wear something. He can wear spandex. That's fine. The fractal stuff's probably more fun to draw. I guess. It looks more cinematic or something. Right. It looks more adult. I don't know. It, it looks less comic booky. y which is, uh, why are they trying to avoid being comic books? <laughs> And the thing about Superman is that he... Has to look a certain way to be Superman. At least to me, he needs to have a spit curl. He needs to have an S on his chest, and he needs to have red undies. <laughs> Not, I mean, he needs to have the suit that we all know. That's what he needs. Uh, what I, what I, what I'm sensing from you is a consistent dissatisfaction with the rebooting of things with Han Solo and Superman's yeah. clothes. Because well, if Superman had originated with the fractal outfit, you might be like, ah, I want the fractal outfit. Taken off. <laughs> uh, but like Batman. You need a certain silhouette on him, but the actual suit can change, as far as I'm concerned. You need the Batman silhouette, but everything, when you turn the lights on him, it can all look different. I yeah, his, he really just, but he does need armor because he's just an angry millionaire. Right. Billionaire. He's an angry billionaire. But that armor can change and, and suit his needs. Mm -hmm. Superman doesn't have any needs. Nope. He doesn't need a special kind of new suit. He just needs to be Superman. And that's another thing, is that he's Superman, and the suit is iconic, and It's what makes him Superman. Otherwise, he's just a good-looking brunette. I really always wanted to shoot this sketch idea. I don't know if I've talked about this in the podcast before. It's a one-joke sketch, but it's basically Superman and Lois Lane hooking up for the first time, and the clothes come off, and his dick is where his butt should be. And she's like, oh, my God! And he's like, what? I'm from another planet. Did you? What did you think the odds were that our physiologies were exactly the same? Why would you think? Let me just move this butt dick out out of the way of my vagina. We have two sets of sexual. That's what I'm going to pitch to SNL. But he might have some plant from some foreign uh, planet, like you know, in his Son, trophy room. She liked it. Uh, that could change her physiognomy to match his. It's possible. He, I'm sure he has one. I'm sure Jimmy Olsen has eaten that at some point. I would. <laughs> I would think. When do you think Superman, do you think Superman has control over his molecular structure? Do you think he would have the ability to vibrate his molecules so fast that he could change his appearance? What, you mean move his cells around? Yeah. No. But I that, think he'd use it you, by you, now. Do you write that story. Okay. I'm sure they're looking for new Superman power. Just wrote it. <laughs> so, just, just fucking wrote it. Not a long story. 
Well, I, I didn't say it was a long story. It's still a, technically a story. They used to have in, in D.C. in like the 70s, they, had, they tried to justify why his glasses are a good enough disguise. And like they had this one story where <laughs> they were like hypnotic glass from Krypton <laughs> that made him look a little older and a little chubbier. And so like everyone sees him as an older, olding, olding? a balding older guy with a bit of a paunch and jowls. That's really interesting. Yeah, and it went away immediately. But, like, Sony had the idea, we got to justify this. I thought it was just that... I, I, I like the idea that... It, and particularly... You know, I feel like this played a lot with the, with the Donner movie. That um, people are all so into themselves mm -hmm. that no one notices each other because of this high-paced, crazy rat race world that we live in. You know, yeah. if you watch... You know, if you watch the original Superman, Lois Lane's all into her reporting, and and uh, and uh, 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 Perry's into uh, his fucking oh, get the story, and Jimmy's all into photography. Like no one ever really looks at him, right? Because everyone's obsessed with themselves and their own crazy lives. And he and he doesn't present himself as someone to be looked at either. That, but right. although, but the truth of the matter is, he's the tallest, most devastatingly handsome yeah. person he within that city he block. Just needs to wash his hair, <laughs> and take the glasses. But he's clean too. He's yeah. like, it's not even like it's not. I, it's such a that's such a byproduct of the time. Of that's so It's like it's hanging on to the anachronism of that made sense in that in in the time when Superman was created because that's you know. Everyone wore suits and was slick bag, you know, yeah. so there's there was virtually no I feel like if Superman had come along in the 70s, he would have worked in a pizza shop and had crazy would have looked like a hippie. And right. then or just shoot. had been a completely different physical person who then becomes Superman. Right. It would have been a black guy, maybe. I doubt that. <laughs> I mean, maybe now in the post Obama era. <laughs> But people can't accept a black Jesus, and that guy was black. <laughs> Are you saying that the Anglo Jesus that's on everyone everyone's wall that has my coloring <laughs> did not grow up in the Middle East? I'm, I'm saying he was probably a five foot six black guy <laughs> who couldn't grow a beard. <laughs> Certainly, who certainly did not have the Doug Henning look. Yeah, there's probably people dressed up like Jesus all over the place, but we don't know it. You know? <laughs> we, like we saw, Sandra and I saw a guy dressed as Jesus sitting at the bus stop, just sitting, talking to some... Was person. this in West Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that guy. Yeah, he's just sitting at the bus stop and calmly talking to somebody, giving advice to some guy sitting next to him on the bus stop. Um, and... You know, he's not dressed like Jesus. No. You know, the guy who just sold me a pack of cigarettes is dressed just like Jesus, you know? Jesus is every one of us, you guys. Wow. Even that guy walked no, by. No, I just mean Middle Eastern. Yeah, 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 the Middle Eastern guy. It's a Middle Eastern guy. <laughs> That's really... <laughs> you, so back to your earlier question. I, it's not that I'm afraid... It's not that I'm afraid of the naysayers. I'm afraid of them feeling like they're winning, which is an <laughs> ego problem, which creates a weakness. Well, also because I have an up, emotional response to it them. It sets them up as a nemesis instead of your audience. Yeah, that's true. And that's a dangerous spot to be. And I know, I know you, this is not how you 
think about things, but but I know comedians who hate their audience, you know, and they ju- I know you don't, but it's really a terrible spot to be in when you really despise the people and then you walk out there and have contempt for them before you even start. How can I don't I don't know how how a performer could continue to perform with an audience that they hate because you when you're saying anything that you believe in or care about or even stuff you don't care about the last thing you want is people you don't like to relate to it (laughs) because you want to be like, no, fuck you. I hate you. I don't want you to like what I like. I don't want you to get what I get. I don't know how, I don't know how they, I don't know how they do it. If you know, this podcast has created an environment where it's people consume it so intimately that if people listen to the podcast, if they choose to listen for a long time, they're probably people we'd hang out with because it's like, they'd be in our friend group because they care about you. Like they relate to, so that's who comes out to improv and Superman. That's <laughs> they care about black Superman. <laughs> uh, and they, and so they, you know, they're, it's a nice audience to have. Almost feels like cheating sometimes. Cause you're performing for people who are basically your friends. Uh, you, so you've, you've turned this really well. <laughs> them being your enemies. Well, no, I still have the, the naysayers are still my enemies. All right. I, I will show them. <laughs> you could never win. It's like trying to fucking punch the wind. Do you think you've ever changed a naysayer's mind? Yes. What happened? I spoke, I engaged them in a respectful way and said, I hear, you know, I hear what you're saying or that was rude. Why would you say that? Or no, actually, you know, because it, particularly internet naysayers come at you from such a place of false authority. They will speak to you authoritatively with little to no information. And so really it's just giving them a little information and go, oh, well, actually, you know, like the hashtag thing on Talking Dead was the perfect example. Mm. I would come on um, at the end of an act and say, the hashtag for the show is one-legged Herschel. <laughs> uh, tons of hate tweets. As people were invested emotionally in The Walking Dead. And then I come on, it's a commercial, I'm a little bit louder I'm not matching the energy of where they were. They've yeah. absorbed the emotional energy of the show, and they <laughs> need to feel bad about it. And so here's this stupid white guy like, hey, everybody, this is to play a hashtag game. And it made people so mad that I begged AMC, please do not make me do this anymore because I feel like I'm ruining the show for people. And I, as a fan of the show, I do not want to be that guy. And so, you know, I would engage a couple of people and go, listen, it's not like I pick that. I didn't say, can I ruin the show for you? And then... A lot of times they would be like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, man. I, I know it's not you. I was just people just react emotionally. And so they they say they say something which is now billboarded and frozen in time of an emotional state that they probably didn't even feel three seconds after it happened. But you see it and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. So, yes. So that's but do you have that experience? I don't tweet. That's don't right. Any, you I don't. I no naysayers. I might have tons, but I, I'm, I'm talking about myself way too much. No, I like you. No, I like you too, but I, I want to hear more about you. And I and I know the naysayers are going to say Chris Hardwick talked too much during this podcast. See, it all comes back around. I People probably do know this about you, that you and Dino were the minds behind Moral Oral, uh-huh. which hopefully they know. That, uh, how many seasons of the show did you do? Four? Three. Three. Yeah, we did, uh, I think we did 10, and then we did... Uh, Twenty, and then we did 10, 13. It's such a it's such a wonderful, fertile environment for 
comedy, a show like Moral Oral, because you have that, you have the um, the diametrical comedy rule, which says that the <laughs> the more in one direction your character is, the more the you know like the darker the comedy can go in the other direction, and people will tolerate it, and people will will think it's funny. Yeah, that's interesting. I think. Um, I think that's why like Seth MacFarlane gets a lot of shit for stuff Seth MacFarlane says. But Stewie can say, or mm. Ted can say, whatever. It's like, oh, it's a cute character. Right, right. Moral Oral, you know, he's adorable. So when he's going around and fucking all the women in the town. <laughs> Out of uh, the goodness of his heart. Exactly. That is, it's funny. Um, yeah, it's he, part of the joke for us, at least by the end, when it had become a drama. The third season is pretty much just a drama <laughs> and ve- had very few jokey jokes in it. And kind of the, the there was just an overall joke, which was... Uh, these little funny puppets are feeling real tragic emotions uh, of self-loathing and loneliness and et cetera. Um, that that became the only joke. And then and it wasn't even a joke to us by then. We really cared about the characters enough oh. to, uh, to lead them down awful paths and explore the darkest sides of them, um, of them hurting themselves and hurting each other and, and, not knowing how to deal with what they're feeling and having to put up this facade uh, in this small town where everyone seems to be happy. It may have been the most dramatic show on television. Well, you know, we had kind of a five-year plan, which was it would start out as a naughty little show, which I don't think we had any plans for it to get any stranger or realer at the beginning. Um, But by season two, we we were thinking, let's evolve this into something that's truly realistic so that eventually we would have uh like by the fifth season the most realistic tv show on tv only with these little rotted puppets you know did did you guys decide not to do the show anymore did adult swim no they stopped it um we had turned in or dino had turned in the scripts for season three and season two had become a little more dramatic and by the end of it there was a two-parter which had which really went into some dark territory that really had no jokes in it, and uh, and it was it was pretty sad and depressing <laughs> and real in its way. And so we liked that emotion, so we kept writing on that in that way. And when Dino turned in the first three scripts, the guy Mike Lazo, who's in charge, is a really nice guy and, and a very smart guy, said, "This is not the show I ordered." This is not a show that we greenlit, and uh, there's no, there's nothing funny here. It's just sad, and we disagreed with him. But then we eventually we just kind of said, "All right, well, let's make the best of this." He cut he cut our order from twenty to thirteen, and we had a whole other storyline of a new character introduced of uh, Oral's grandfather who was going to come live with them, and he was terminal, um, and he was someone who had left the town because it had become so such uh, a town of hypocrites and he was kind of the voice of the other side of the coin for oral uh but we had to junk all that and we just wrapped it up in a pretty good way but we had a lot more to say why do you think it was important to you guys to make that the make those stories as opposed to like, oh, you know, okay, we'll just soften it up. Well, I think because Dino is the kind of guy, and he was in charge, of course, um, 
he's the kind of guy who will get bored if he gets too comfortable. And uh, he also is a very thoughtful writer. And so he, he's delving into himself and his own experiences uh, to try to find some truth in his comedy. And what that led to was straight up truth. And uh, he found great joy in finding the truth of the background uh, stories of these characters that started out as caricatures and two-dimensional beings that were just fuel for jokes. But how interesting then to look at those stereotypes and then find out where, how they got to be that way uh, and to find out that they've got a very rich backstory. And once you delve into these uh, cardboard cutouts, jokey, nothing characters, <laughs> they are so deep and rich and dark and awful. I just, I'm really interested in the idea of now, of course, if I, I'm not really a true actor, but if I were and I had a theater group, I might almost suggest, let's take some more oral scripts and act them out as dramatic plays and see how they, see how they play out. I wonder if it would play. I mean, part of the, part of the joke is that there's silly little puppets doing this. But if you, but if you played it as a straight drama with humans, as opposed to those Davy and Goliath puppets, I wonder if that would... Could be an interesting. That's, that is very interesting. Let's do it. Well, I've got a garage. <laughs> You're going to need a better actor than me, my friend. <laughs> You're gonna have to call some of your Second City friends. Uh, what was the, how was uh, how was Thirty Rock for you? Did you did you enjoy the experience? Um, yeah, I did. Uh, there's a long, too long a pause there. I did. I loved it. Um, it was. Um, the it was an incredible kind of introduction into that world. I'd never been on a TV show as a regular before. I'd guest starred and stuff like that, but I'd never uh, been part of something that was that kind of international. And it was great because it got a lot of attention right away, and was immediately called brilliant. That's a great spot to be in. I had nothing to do with what I was doing, but I was part of. I was riding on some some brilliant coattails there, and uh, it was great to be part of something that was so respected so immediately by people I respect. And so it was very heady to to be at a party or at some event where people I was afraid to approach walked up to me, you know, and said, "I'm a big fan." That's, What's a good example? One person, uh, Jonathan Price. Oh yeah, of course. Jonathan saw, Price. Yeah, I saw him and I was like, oh my God. That was too James Mason. Jonathan Price. <laughs> that was very James Mason. Um, and, you know, just and anybody, everybody. It was like all the smart people, if you will, loved that show. And uh, I'm sh- I was shocked to see like the, the whole cast of Downton Abbey approaching and saying, oh my God. It's a big fan. Or, or, I'm sorry, I didn't make that out. You, know, you, like, <laughs> you, you liked the show? I'm not understanding. I think you... Are you okay? Or Brian Cranston. Yes, Downton Syndrome. <laughs> what? Come on, guys. That's rude. What? Um, Brian Cranston, Cranston, big 30 Rock yeah. fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it was very, very heady. Gwyneth Paltrow hugged me out of nowhere. Wow. I know. I didn't know her from Adam. The Pepper Potts. That's the one. It's pretty amazing. I know. It's weird. 
How did you enjoy the character of Pete? Um, he he evolved. He it was strange. He he started out a little realer than he ended up. I think he had a the function. His function early on was to be Liz's conscience and best friend and ear and all that. Um, but eventually, I think some of the other characters kind of took that over because they had a funnier take, like worse advice to give her. <laughs> um, and that would be Jack and, and uh, Jenna. And so Pete had to, had, he built his own little dark backstory as well. And so you'd get these little hints about his bizarre life. Uh, you never quite see it, though. So I was a little disappointed that we never got, got to see it, but it was fun to talk about. You know, and, and you know he he is not a mysterious character, but there was obviously something weird going on in his life pretty much all the time. And so I was really happy the way it ended. I don't know, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I think Pete ended up in a very with a very good storyline at the end, and and uh, it all ended the way it should have. As with all the characters, I thought it ended brilliantly. The there's, the tag on the last episode kind of shows you uh, where everybody is at the end, and I think it's everybody is just exactly where they should be. It's great. That's really cool. I, I, I just, I think that kind of comedy is really, I don't know how fuck, I don't fucking know how Tina does it. Everything. Just writing books and movies and being in movies and raising, and raising kids. kids and doing that and basically running that show. And, and it's, it's really, um, it's really hard to have a show that's that, like the joke, the joke density on that show is incredibly high, but also to manage to have characters that you can still relate to and feel human about sometimes, because yeah. it can't just be, it can't just be all comedy all the time, because no one really relates to that. You can't, you just can't take comedy all the time. You still have to have an emotional way in sometimes yeah, to give a shit about it, because <laughs> it would just be too much. She's a brilliant person all around i've known her since uh second city um and she was always kind of the the in a, in a very smart room she was always one of the smartest people um and she was great at second city she didn't shine like some others did um but you could see her talent and her acting chops i was very impressed with um because she she could write very funny and she could improvise hysterically, but she could also invest herself in a character really, really well, and I really admired that. Um, and I think she's a lot better actress than she'll give herself credit for. Um, but the thing is, she I think she would succeed in anything she does. She's she's someone who can suss a situation out immediately. She understands all angles as soon as she walks in the room. And um, she she's got you nailed as soon as you as soon as you talk to her for twenty seconds she knows who you are where you came from and and what you're about and um, that's a I don't know if you can learn that but she has that skill she's amazing and well she doesn't use it for evil which is nice I, I think the mark of any uh, I think the mark of any brilliant comedian is that they just. They can analyze and absorb and figure out like what the true elements are yeah. of any situation and then somehow put that in a machine in their head and relay that back yeah. in, and some, she does in it, some way. She does it instantly, too. She's so quick, and she's so 
uh, it's like I think she must be constantly editing herself because she, I think she could be telling great one-liners constantly all day, all day. Uh, with every situation, every conversation, she could have something really, really cogent and funny and not just like flippant or, or like non sequitur, but something that cuts to the truth of whatever's happening and make a joke immediately about it. But I think she's constantly having to just, uh, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Don't say it. And then just, <laughs> if, if the moment's okay for it, then she'll do it. So if like for, in a comedy sense, she's got the Cyclops visor on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She, yeah. She's constantly like dial it up to aim the intensity. Yeah. That's good. What are you working on now? Are you were, you're in Los Angeles for a little bit. Uh, I'm auditioning for pilots, and um, it's going very well because I'm still auditioning. For <laughs> it's a good process, really. Um, but it's I've been busy doing that, so I'm happy about that. Um, and then I'm going to be doing a movie in the, over the summer, and then a, a play in the summer as well in New York, and. Um, and I've got some improv shows and stuff like that. What well. play are you going to do? It's a new play by a guy named Eugene Pack that uh, I'll be doing. Um, the plan now is sometime in uh, June or July in East Hampton. Is it called Pack Attack? Uh, it is. What is it called? I can't remember what it's called. I think it's changed the name. It might be a Columbus and Vermont or something like that. I think it's Pack Attack. I'll, I'll ask him. I don't think it is. Could you please tell him to make it pack attack? I can ask him, but I think... I he, think you should tell him, like, get in his face about he it. He might be sick of ha- hearing pack attack. <laughs> I don't really even understand that sentence you're saying right now. How could anyone with the last name Pack not be like, pack attack, like, it, all day long? I'm, I've actually already put in a request for it to be called Pac-Man Fever. <laughs> <laughs> Driving me crazy. I remember that song, and it fucking drives me. I can't believe Did that. Did you I like it. that song when it came out? I loved it. <laughs> because I, look out, Bieber, before you there was another fever. <laughs> and it was a yellow puck who was d- hungry. Were you in video games at the, at the outset? Absolutely. How were you when Pong came out? Um, I don't know. What was Pong? 74? Like yeah, I was alive. Um, it wasn't... Uh, did you have like an Intellivision or a, like yeah, a, mm-hmm. an Odyssey yep. set? I my, we had a uh, um, my my mother's father was a kind of a technophile, and so he had every new yeah. You know, he got one of the he got one of the laserdisc players in like '79. He had a Betamax, then he switched to VHS. Yeah. He always had the camcorders, every kind of everything, and he had video game systems. So there was a there was an Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and then he had a uh, he also had an Intellivision. We had, my dad went out, he was the same way as your grandfather, and he walked in one night with Odyssey, which was a suitcase. Like yeah, Tony Stark's I remember suitcase. the Odyssey. And uh, it was like a, a brick for a paddle. Yeah. And it had like two knobs on it. Mm-hmm. And he also had a shotgun that shot a, a beam of light. Was it, did it have the, the alphanumeric pad on it, or was that the ColecoVision? That was ColecoVision. We, this we, was just knobs and like a button, and and the, the games themselves it was like pong was the standard for it. That's what you play the most, and there was pong hockey, mm-hmm. and then there were other games that they tried to make into games. There was like a duck hunt thing with use the the shotgun for, it. but all it was was a rectangle of white mm-hmm. on a black field, yeah, 
which would move across, and you'd shoot the white light. Yeah. There was no, there was nothing else going on. It was just a rectangle moving across. And that was enough for us. And then there were like games that tried to make <laughs> games out of nothing. Like there was one like, a haunted house game. I don't remember what the point was, but it was like find the ghost, and so it was like randomly shooting with the gun or something to find where the square was on the screen when it was like invisible. And if you happened to randomly hit it, then you found the ghost. What an infuriating game. Kinda, yeah. It's kind of battleshipy. And, and then they had these plastic transparencies with, like, the scene on I it. remember those. Yeah. And you'd put them over the television set. a soccer field, yeah. or it'd be, like, a tennis uh, court, or it'd be a, a haunted house. Sir, don't you think we could program this? God, no! <laughs> it would take... We'd have to have enough RAM. It would... We. Do you have any idea the building size we would have to have <laughs> to create such a thing? It would cost millions. That's six or seven reel-to-reels right there. I mean, come on. I'm not made of vacuum tubes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. Uh, I, uh, yeah, so there was this very parallel uh, arcade revolution that was happening is because I grew up in bowling centers. <laughs> oh, sorry. I know, it's true. Were you raised in bowling centers? Yes. By bowlers? Like, I am Tarzan. I'm the Tarzan of bowling. <laughs> um, my, uh, you know, my dad was a professional bowler. My, my mother's father owned a couple bowling centers in Florida. So you're Lord of the Balls. <laughs> I've not been known by that name in I quite know. some time. <laughs> Pack attack, scene one. <laughs> um, so, they, you know, my grandfather, they, they realized pretty quickly that parents go to league night so rather than having your kids run around and deface lockers, they, you know, they start putting video games in bowling centers. And so I was just in the right situation at the right time to be completely engulfed by all video games. Like pit, Pitfall? Pitfall for on, the, yeah, on, the 20, on the Atari 2600. Um, but in the, in the arcade, it was, you know. You didn't have a Pitfall in the, in the arcade? Uh-uh. We were at the pizza place by me. That was great. Did they put uh, 2,600 games in an arcade cabinet? I don't know. Maybe they did. No, I think they had a ball and everything. I think it was... Did it really? Pitfall? Actual... I don't remember the arcade Pitfall. Yeah. I just remember Pong, Asteroids, Space Invaders, Space Invaders Deluxe, where they put the colored film on the screen so that the game looked like it was in color. Uh-huh. Then Pac-Man, and then, you know, Galaga, Galaxian, Gorf, Track and Fields, all of it. Um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was on board pretty quickly. Pretty pretty fast I took to the games. Dragon's Lair flipped everyone's mind. Uh, we're so old. I'm not comfortable with that statement. <laughs> you just talked about Dragon's Lair. Well, you know, Dragon's Lair was... Uh, <laughs> it was a laser Laserdisc game. Sort of. You look good. Thanks, man. So do you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Although you said that you look good with an air of... The surprise, like, you shouldn't. It was backpedaling, really. <laughs> Maybe backhanding a little bit. Oh, well, you look all right. You look good for... How old are you now? You look good. You look good, ellipses. <laughs> what? what? You don't just say ellipses. <laughs> I've, I said ellipses into uh, Siri. I was doing the uh, voice recognition. I said ellipses. Because you can say exclamation point when she puts an exclamation point. Sure. She, she wrote the word ellipses. Um, and then I said dot, 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 and she wrote period, period, period. She wrote <laughs> an ellipses. And I thought, what is this? This is an uneducated baby robot. It's the future. What are we even... Why, why, why? 
Don't they understand ellipses? Exactly. The I greatest pharaoh of punctuation. It's the dumbing down of America right there. Starting with Siri. Yep. Get on it, Siri. Ellipses. We're about at the end of the podcast. This was oh. really a fun, this was a really fun talk. And for, we should just, you know, we should just catch up like this on the phone when there's not a podcast. We I should know. pretend. This is what I say to people sometimes. Podcast your friends, but don't record it. <laughs> Talk to people like you want to know things about them. Um, Chris and I only see each other backstage at these days. Yeah, that's right. It was a sketch fest or... And at uh, Thrilling Adventure Hour. Thrilling, yep. Really fun Thrilling Adventure Hour. Yeah. It's a good time. Now the world will have to be our backstage. When will that premiere? What? The eighth anniversary Thrilling Adventure. I don't know when they're going to put that up. All right. Why would you? <laughs> the, ben, it, ben, the Ben's put it up whenever they... I don't know what their schedule is. You don't? I don't. Because they have so many shows recorded. I mean, they have eight, basically almost eight years worth of shows recorded. Let me ask you about that audience. Okay. They seem to be very invested, and they, they dress up, and they, they seem... Who, who are... Who, you've done that show several times. Yeah, lots. Yeah. So who is that audience? They, they are really invested. Um, it's the same people who go to Disneyland on Dapper Day. <laughs> <laughs> they enjoy... You know, it's people who enjoy event like an event. Like, it's a very special event. Thrilling Adventure Hour is a very special event that they get to go to once a month. And it's a very loyal crowd. And it, yeah. they're sweet. And they're... You know, there's a lot of nerd crossover uh -huh. and, you know, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people after the show that are huge Doctor Who fans or talk about, right. you know. Um, well, they were very, they, they love that show. Love I it, don't yeah. Blame them. They've, they've really made that, like, they've formed a relationship with their audience who've helped develop that show over the last and eight that's years. that's what I got, you know, I wasn't aware, because I'd done it in New York, um, but I wasn't aware of the cult status that mm -hmm. the show has. Absolutely. It's amazing. Well, it's, it's. It's a really great show to go see, you know, uh, once a month because the writing is amazing, I think. The, the, the core cast is phenomenal, and the guests are always a lovely surprise. Like, yeah. you know, Karen Gillan and you and Weird Al. And, and you. And, <laughs> but you and I got to spend the evening with Karen Gillan. That was fun. Karen's great. So nice. And you've known her for a while. A little while, yeah. I just met her that night. She's so sweet. So this, and I was I was doing my best not to to geek out on her. I think I succeeded. I might have been staring a few too many times. <laughs> uh, but uh, she was so like spunky and nice and and shy and friendly at the same time. Everyone in the Who cast is all. They're all as nice as you want them to be. Yeah, I met I met. Um, um, There's not a dick in the box. Wonderful. Thank you. I met. Uh, I'm going to forget her name. River Song. What is her real name? Oh, Alex Kingston. And she was couldn't have been nicer. She yeah, was great. so open and sweet. The first time I ever uh, really got to hang out with them at all was after, uh, what was the event? It was the premiere of a couple seasons ago, mm -hmm. a couple series ago in New York, and they screened at a theater and people waited in line. And it was a big thing. And so I did a panel with all of them after the episodes they showed the first episode. And so it's all these people and they push us into a SUV to go to some like after thing. And I realize I'm in the backseat of the SUV sitting next to me is Karen 
sitting next to her is Arthur Darvel. Yeah. Sitting in front of him is Matt, and sitting next to her is Alex Kingston and me. <laughs> and I'm a really big Doctor Who fan. Yeah. Even I and I was on board with that cast pretty quickly anyway, and so there was a, and they were so nice. Like they totally, I wasn't part of their group. They could have totally blown off the new guy, and yeah. they were so nice. Mm. But I still was like, <laughs> what if I shit my pants? Like I literally was had like the weird phobias of like, what if I throw up right now? Yeah, and this is the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what if I shit my pants? I mean, that's never been a possibility. It was never an, an option. But wouldn't this be the worst time? Like, I have weird phobias like that. What if right now is the time? Is right now the time? <laughs> no. What? Uh, We're classing this up. <laughs> Goes right to the pants. The funniest stuff happens in the pants. <laughs> Pussies, dicks, shits, farts, queefs. All the best stuff. <laughs> All the top shelf stuff. <laughs> You got that list really handy <laughs> in your mind. Don't you think about it all the time? <laughs> I will now. Those are basically my Mad Libs go-tos. <laughs> I, we need a we need an adjective. A queefings, que, queefingness, queefish, queefish. An adverb, fartingly. <laughs> I need a proper noun. Shitston. Shitston Queefville. <laughs> USA. Well, Scott Atzid, it's a delight to have you on the show. I've enjoyed it. As have I. How does it compare to other podcasts you've done? They're all different. Ah, uh, that's not a compliment. Uh, no, it all. is a compliment. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. It's it because the energy of the guest I kind of drives the show. Uh-oh. It's good. You're very interesting, and you say you weren't interesting. I know you don't mean that, but you are. You have a lot. My, you have a lot of great stuff to my say. Ener- my energy has gone down, though. Have you noticed? Nope. I'm like crashing right now. Your energy's gone down on my dick. See, hilarious it's in the <laughs> pants. <laughs> I just got an energy blowjob from Scott Edson. <laughs> sweet energy head. It is the laziest blowjob he's ever had. <laughs> this is an interesting blowjob. <laughs> But it's different, you know, when it's one-on-one, it's a different energy than when Matt and Jonah are here or just Matt's here or Kyle's sitting in or if there's a group of people. And But I, I, I do enjoy the the one-on-one conversations sometimes because especially with people like you that I never get to hang out with, this is this was a lot of us catching up and yeah. and, and strengthening our friendship. These, these actual information was passed that I was interested in. Well, that's a first. <laughs> no, it's not. That's not what you told me before the show. Would you stop giving the internet ammo? I say a lot of things. <laughs> Please, don't help the naysayers say their nays. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Oh, internet. This is Scott Acid. You're listening to The Nerdist. Okay, that's great. Could you do it one more time and say you're listening to The Nerdist on the ner- on, uh, Nerdist Podcast Network? This is Scott Acid from Third, 30 Rock from the Sun. You're listening to the Nerdist Podcast. I'm oh, sorry, I wasn't recording that radio. time. I wasn't recording that time. Sure, one more time. This is Scott Adsit from Moral Oral. It's hard to say Moral Oral. It is a little bit. Say, um, do give another credit. Give a credit that people might not think of right away. Um, in, in your station ID for this station we don't have. This is Scott Adsit from Stacked. Wishing you a happy Christmas. <laughs> Are you in England? 
<laughs> you didn't expect that, did you? I guess not. You've been listening to Stacks. Scott Edson. <laughs> Stacked is on... Off. <laughs> Off what? You... You're listening to Scott Edson of Stacked on no television. <laughs> Stacked was the, um, the show... That uh, this is embarrassing. What's the name of the creator of uh, Modern Family? His show before Modern Family was Stacked, which is the oh uh, oh um, Steve Modern. Steve Modern's show before uh, Modern's Family. It's about a family whose last name is Modern, right? Yeah. Um, but this was uh, Stacked, starring Pamela Anderson, which was I, I remember it. actually a very well written show. I remember Stacked. Yeah, and well performed. Mm-hmm. And I was a, a guest star. And they, they, I guest starred, and then they said, we want to bring you back as a love interest. <coughs> Not for Pam, but for a, a lovely woman also on the show. And They should <laughs> reboot it as uh, Stack Pack Attack. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk to your friend? And then we all have fractal uniforms yeah. on. <laughs> fractal bustiers. <laughs> fractal bustiers would be the name of this podcast. If- <laughs> But yeah, it was a good show. It's, it's just a shame it got canceled right as they were hiring me. <laughs> it's just a turnstile. Welcome. It was nice working <laughs> yeah. with you. The end. Enjoy your burrito. I'm going to hit end any second. <laughs> oh, God. I'll hang up first. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. You hang up. Uh, you, I love you more. You hang up. I love you. You're too. still there. <laughs> I'm so excited. You stayed on. Okay, hang up now. <laughs> Wait, are you there? I have to go to bed. It really, you have to say goodbye. Okay, I'm gonna say goodbye now. I'm gonna say goodbye. Okay, say goodbye so I can say so I say goodbye. Oh wait, I forgot to tell you something. I what? forgot to say something. What? I love you so much. I love you so much. You're going to wake my husband. <laughs> Just give him an energy blowjob while you're on the phone with me. <laughs> you, would you like that, baby? Yeah, I want a low energy blowjob. I want you to low energy blow your husband. <laughs> what scene are we in right now? <laughs> I don't even know. I'm trying to suss out the information. You and I are in, in some type of illicit affair, and I'm trying to get you to blow your husband. So... <laughs> And you're you're a man or a woman in this scene, I'm not sure. This sounds just like a pitch. <laughs> For stack pack attack. <laughs> For fractal bustiers. On the coast. <laughs> <laughs> LA reference. <laughs> Apologies. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. <laughs> Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. 
As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.